Well, grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel 1. We want to pick up where we left off last week. Now, originally, I thought we could get through the entire chapter of, 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 of this opening chapter of 2 Samuel in a single week. And then you start reading it and you realize just the riches of, of God's words. We're in week three and uh, I could easily spend four to six weeks in this. There's just so much here, particularly with this lamentation from, from David. That's the found on page 274 of your pew Bibles. As always, if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. And we can even get you a, a even nicer Bible if you would prefer. Uh, so page 274 with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word. We want to start in verse 17 and go all the way down to verse 27 in the chapter. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Till not in Gath, published not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Geboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, and the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Your daughters... Of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perish. Go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, ask. As always, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet and our mouth, that we would be transformed by the power of the gospel. As we lament here with David, um, may we do so with our eyes ever on Jesus and find healing in him. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You're seated. Where were you when the world stopped turning? On that September day, I don't know if you remember uh, after 9-11 uh, how our nation responded. Very different the way we respond to national tragedies and whatnot today. But, but back then, there was a sense of real unity. And, and one of the things that really stuck out to me was how artists of, of all stripes, whether it was uh, uh, songwriters or singers or uh, painters or uh, poets or whatever it might be, used their talents and skills, their giftedness uh, of expression to help themselves and to help others through the process of grief. I don't know if you're remembering this. You would turn on the radio and a station might is supposed to be playing the latest hits. They started playing older songs with, with, with uh, references in them to the events of 9-11 as a sort of uh, way to, to help us through the process. So too, not only did you have older songs put in a new context, you had new songs written in light of the tragedy of 9-11. The song I just referenced by Alan Jackson may go down as one of his uh, most listened to songs and one of his most uh, awarded songs uh, he ever wrote or sang. 
uh, following why he, he wrote the song, he, he said, quote, I didn't want to write a patriotic song. I didn't want it to be vengeful either, but I didn't want to forget about how I felt and how I knew other people felt that day. He, of course, wasn't alone, as we've said, with all the other artists around the country using their art to express the emotions and the thoughts of the American people. Art has a way of expressing what mere words seem inadequate to say. And let us not miss here that David, here a shepherd, here a warrior, and soon to be king, was such an artist. Do you remember that the chapter opens with news that Saul and Jonathan are dead and the army of Israel defeated by the Philistines? And, and although not everything the Amalekite told David is true, those facts are indeed true. And, and so what David does is he responds with grief. And so in this single chapter, we go from the heights of victory to the valleys of sorrow. And what David provides for us here, and this is going to be important for us to, to understand this passage, what this lament is not, it is not a self-help guide. Often we come to the Bible and, and we want it to say, give me three points and a poem so I can be a better husband. And certainly there's plenty of places in the Bible that offer us that. But really what you have here is it, it confronts us with the emotions of grief. So this isn't a self-help guide. This draws us into the heart and mind and soul of David and to you and I. Let us start really where David starts here. And that is he starts with the message of fellowship. I think this is something that we could easily miss here. Notice in verse 17 and 18, we, we see uh, that, that he is drawing others in to join him in his lamentations. And notice he does three things. He introduces three things here in verses 17 and 18. First of all, he tells us that he laments. We saw this last week. We won't belabor the point that David lamented a laments. This is a strong lamentation, a prayer out, called out to God in the form of a psalm, a, a poem, by which he expresses his brokenness and his hurts and his sorrows. And so he responds to national and personal grief with, with sorrow. And we saw again last week that this is an appropriate response. And I do think it's worth commenting here that the West, when it comes to grief, make two extreme errors, particularly when it comes to men grieving. We make two extreme errors. One is the error that says men don't grieve, right? I was listening to a, uh, a sports uh, radio guy years ago. He was interviewing a baseball player who just got inducted to the Hall of Fame. And, and he, he said, there are only two times in, in a man's life you're allowed to cry. One, when your children are born. And secondly, when you're inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame, Right. Now, he was being goofy, yeah, and, and, and we should see that as, as a goofy comment. But it carries with it a, a, a certain uh, presumption that men do not grieve. Yet there is another extreme there, isn't it? There is the extreme that men should wear their emotions at all times on their sleeves. What you'll notice here is that David is neither one of those. And the temptation, particularly for men, is to choose one of those. But David here is a genuine warrior, military leader, farmer, and a man's man who can, uh, uh, who can swing a sword, behead giants, and still lament with the best of them. 
The point here is to see that our understanding of masculinity should be shaped by Scripture and not by TikTok. The same, we should say, should apply to femininity, to allow it to be shaped by Scripture. So we see here that David laments a limitation. Secondly, notice that he leads. Notice there beginning of verse 18. He teaches his warrior men how to lament. He teaches them this psalm. And so while there is, he's still going through the process of grief. This is his loss as well as it is everyone else. He steps up and leads his men and his family through the process of grief. One of the things I have found in ministry is that this is an aspect of leadership you will not find in a leadership book. You could go to, to a bookstore, I think they're still around, and you can go to the leadership section, and you could read every one of those books. It will say nothing about leading others to the process of grief. That is precisely what it is David does here. Furthermore, uh, what we see here is, is, is that, um, that, that the, the burden of grief, how is it that I can grieve well and yet lead others to grieve well, is rarely discussed even in our churches. Chances are you fathers have been here, right? That, that, that maybe you're in the process of bearing your parents or, or a loved one or something. This is a deep loss for your children and for others in the family. And you're stuck between grief and having to lead your family through grief. It's what David does here. The burden of grief and leadership together. Yet it is necessary, isn't it? Thirdly, notice he logs. By that, I mean he records, but it has to start with an L because that's what my seminary professors told me, that if it's not alliterated, God can't use your sermon. So he records, he, he logs. And you'll notice there again in, in verse 18 that, that he writes this psalm down to permanent record. Now we have it here in 2 Samuel. It's also written in the book of Jasher. Now this book is a mysterious collection of songs and psalms that are no longer extant. We, we don't have it. It doesn't exist anymore. So this lament is written down in multiple places. If you're wanting another reference to the book of Jasher, it's in Joshua chapter 10. Um, and there may be a reference to it, at least in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 8 having to do with a psalm that uh, Solomon sang. But the point is to see here that, that it shouldn't surprise us that there were more than 150 psalms that the Jewish people sang, right? We, we get this, right? I mean, we, we have songs that we sing. In fact, I have a, a playlist of worship songs. I, I like to play in my office every Sunday morning. I actually have two playlists on my Spotify. Uh, one is strictly hymns. The other is more general worship. We're not going to sing every one of those songs here in worship. Just not going to. But I still enjoy them in my own personal worship time. I like listening to worship music on a Sunday morning. But what we need to see here, maybe beyond all of that, is David's grief was shared in fellowship. Solitude, as we talked about last week, not isolation, but solitude, led him to family, to close friends, and to the people of God. There's a good chance that many of us here today can, can bear testimony of a time when we say, I don't know how I would have gotten through that tragic time of my life, that, that, that moment of sorrow without the people of God, without the church, without my family, without my friends. So too David understands that, yes, grief may lead us to solitude, but that isn't a permanent moment. Grieve, when we grieve well, leads us to fellowship. So if you want to persevere through suffering and sorrow, it is vital you do not remain alone. 
Now, as we said, what follows, particularly the, the psalm itself, is again not a self-help remedy. Rather, it is an honest expression of grief. It is a prayer to God shared with the people of God. So the first emotion we see here that David shares is shame. Shame. Notice the language starting in verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Notice here, he, he states the source of his grief. Israel is defeated on your high places. Thus, the demise of Israel is a public reality. Land has been lost. The king and his heirs have been slain. And this is a moment of personal and national grief for David. And everyone knows this. This is Israel's shame. And if it's Israel's shame, it is David's shame. And this shame comes to reality in verse 20. Notice he mentions two cities in verse 20, Gath and Ashkelon. Gath is the easternmost major city of, of the Philistines. Ashkelon is the westernmost city. Thus, what he's saying is that all of the Philistines is, is heaping ridicule on us. It'd be like us saying, what, Baltimore on the east, L.A. on the west, or, or whatever. I guess Honolulu on the west. I guess if we want to be technical. Additionally, what we need to see is that Gath in the east is the political capital of the Philistines. Ashkelon is the religious capital of the nation. Thus, the, the, the added shame, that is that the, the, the military might, the political system celebrates our defeat. At the same time, they are crediting false idols, false gods for their victory. And the thought of ridicule and shame being heaped upon his beloved nation is too much for David to deal with. One can even imagine the guilt David must have felt, can't you? Sure, he was protecting Israel from the Amalekites when the Philistines defeated Saul and his men. But maybe he could have done more. And let's not forget that David at one point served as a mercenary to the Philistines, gave military insights to the Philistines. You see how easy it is for guilt and shame to be associated with each other as it often is in the Bible. One always will feed into the other. Guilt will feed shame. Shame will feed guilt. And together, you get regrets. We've all experienced this, right? Maybe we first heard the news of a tragic accident or the sudden death of someone we love, and it isn't long before regret and shame and guilt become our story. I didn't tell them I loved them. I didn't tell them to be more careful. I didn't warn them about the increased traffic, the bad weather, potential dangers. Why is it looking back that I cared so much about the small things and not so much about them and their needs? Maybe even this morning you're thinking of scenarios and you're running through them in your mind's eye. And you're, 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 that sense of guilt and regret is haunting you again. We replay these scenarios in our heads and convince ourselves we, we could have done more or we didn't do enough or... We were in the wrong, or maybe it's all our faults. This is a great burden shared among all humans. It's a burden far too great for us to carry. Almost every funeral I've done, every time I've been to the bedside of one who has passed, these emotions come to the forefront, don't they? It was the same with David. 
I don't want to hear the women of Philistia to, to sing of our shame. But isn't the shame that David feels here? There is also anger he feels. And notice how quickly shame and guilt and regret morphs naturally into anger. And this anger manifests itself in three ways for David. The first is found in verse 21, and that is regret. Notice the language. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Now the mountains of Gilboa, Gilboa is where Saul and his men died. And in anger, what does, what, what, what does David do here? He curses Gilboa. He, he rages against it. He wants the entire region to experience drought and famine. That is the judgment of God. And you need to notice here, there are, this physical punishment has spiritual ramifications. If there is no produce, there can be no grain offerings. And without grain offerings, there can be no true worship. So he calls down a curse. Now, let's just pause here and think about it. Is any of this reasonable for David? He is calling down a curse upon a geographical area. Will that happen? Does he have any power to stop the rains from falling on Gilboa? No. But there's nothing rational about anger like this, is there? That's the point. This isn't rational we see here. His command will not produce anything. David's sorrow is leading him down a path of rage and left unchecked, it will ruin lives. Maybe here you should write a little footnote for, for your own soul and think, when I am angry, I am irrational and I think irrationally. This is the problem with trying to rationalize with mobs, isn't it? There's a story in, in Acts, right? When there's a mob, you know, great is Artemis of the Athenians, right? Or the Ephesians, right? And, and there's a mob outside the church, if you will. And you remember, uh, two guys from the church think, well, I can just go out there and reason with these people. You can't reason with a mob. You can't reason with someone who is enraged. You can't do it. There's no rationality there. But it isn't just rage that he feels here. There is regret that he feels here. Again, this is a common theme with sorrow. Notice the, the parallels there. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, and the shield of Saul, not anointed with, with Saul. The, the parallels are there. The shield of the mighty and the shield of Saul are the same thing, but they are both in ruins. Gilboa is littered with the shields of the Israelites. They have failed the army. And remember, David is not there. Again, these are raw emotions of regret. The feeling is, is that this must be his fault. Maybe had he handled things differently with Saul when he was trying to hunt him down. Maybe if he hadn't left town and gone to the Philistines. Maybe if he was just more patient. Maybe if he just went to battle anyways because his nation was worth it. You can sense that rage and regret are, 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 are raw emotions he is sensing here. And this uh, climaxes in verse 22 with a sense of revenge. Again, notice the language and the parallels here. Great uh, Jewish poetry. From the blood of the same to the fat of the mighty. That's parallelism. It's, he's saying the same thing here. That those who are slain are the ones who are mighty. Uh, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Now, 
when you first read this, you're thinking this is just weird Jewish poetry. But you get this, right? This is a very American way of thinking. Now, you notice there, the bow of Jonathan and the sword of Saul. So you start with people who are slain, and then you, the second line are those who killed them. Who killed them? Saul and Jonathan. You see where this is going? David's like, yeah, they might have been defeated. They might have been killed. We might be shamed, but they went down fighting. This is the climactic scene of every death in every guy action movie, right? They're surrounded by all the bad guys, right? But they're not surrendering. Sword is out, and they're just a-swinging. And the music slows down, right? The, you know, the pace is a little slower. You zoom in on their fight, right? This is what David is doing here. This celebrates the weapons of warriors as a common motif in ancient stories, fantasy literature, and even modern stories now. Think about when Aragorn, the Lord of the Rings, picks up the sword, the reforged sword Anduril. He sets out to fulfill his destiny to become the king of Gondor, right? For the three of you who get that reference, you're welcome. When Arthur picks out the sword Excalibur from the stone, with it comes the sovereignty of the crown. This is what David is doing. This imagery is a battle cry for David. It's a battle cry for his men. It's a battle cry for the nation. It is to say that, that, that we've we, we got to fight like they fought. We've got to get our land back. We've got to get our victory back. One scholar suggests that what this is, is it is a battle cry for the military to join again. And, and, and it, is, it is sort of like us saying today, remember the Alamo? Or the Jewish army to this day, when you go through the army, you are taught to recite, Masada shall not fall again. I think there's some truth to that. Now, this is relatable, isn't it? Anger is a natural response to grief. And we must learn to be patient with those who are going through this process of grief. And, and you have to be careful not to take everything they say personally, recognize that they will do things irrational, because anger is an offspring of grief. Hurt people hurt people. And what happens is, because we lack maturity, is, is that when there is a family going through grief, Uncle Reamer over here will say some outlandish and nasty, and Cousin Bob over here will take it personally, and the two will never speak again. And what they'll do is uncle over here will grab his crew, Bob over here will grab his crew, and the family is split. And that's long before the will is read. Long before the will is read. Hurt people hurt people. You know, one of the things I found is nothing brings a family together like death. You notice that? You go to a funeral, you're going to see people you've not seen in 20 years. Nothing will tear your family apart more than a death. We must learn to anticipate this and not to take everything personal. In fact, I suspect that some of you here, the primary way in which you express grief is not through tears. It is through anger. You will lash out at everyone. You will hold fast to your bitterness. You will blame everyone and everything for the pain in your soul. You'll never acknowledge what it is that's really going on. You're just angry. No, you are grieving. Maybe you've never seen your father weep, but you witnessed him raise his voice, punch a wall, or even scream. 
Remember again, this passage is not a self-help guide the way that we think of self-help guides. It is an insight into the human experience. The Bible understands us as humans and, 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 and takes us on as we really are. David, as a man after God's own heart, struggled with these raw emotions. He sees the death of the king. He sees the passing of his friend. He sees the defeat of his nation. And what does he want? He wants revenge. Notice the third emotion worth highlighting here, and that is love. He turns his attention to his king and to his beloved friend. And I do think there's something helpful here that, that it's less about what he is experiencing and, and more about the people whom he has lost. I think there's something helpful there. Actually, I think one of the best places to illustrate what it is that David is going through here is taken from uh, a Marvel uh, TV show, WandaVision, where Vision pulls his wife to the side and says simply, what is grief but love persevering? And so what we have here is David's love persevering in the means of grief. In fact, the main theme of this psalm, and especially its final section, you'll see it's repeated in verse 25 and 27 and also in verse 19, is the phrase, how the mighty have fallen. He also demonstrates the importance of both corporate mourning and personal mourning. So in verse 23 through 25, we get the, the corporate mourning, right? Notice Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than the eagles. You daughters of Israel weep over Saul. Notice he called on the congregation to weep. This was corporate mourning. This is why we have funerals. We have memorial services. Because there is a role for corporate and community grief that we grieve together. And one of the things I like to remind people whenever I do a funeral is, you are evidence by your presence here that one life can affect dozens and hundreds of other people. Here is one person who's being laid to rest, and yet you've been impacted by them. There is something helpful about corporate sorrow, corporate grief when, when done right. And that is what he, what he does here. Now, it is striking, isn't it, that David honors Saul in death, even though Saul took, took, took away his wife, tried to have him killed on multiple occasions. Yet despite his personal experience with Saul, he is leading his men, leading his family, and leading his nation through grief. But then notice how it gets more personal starting in verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Notice I am the one distressed here. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war perish. Now, my brother Jonathan, they weren't literal brothers, but there may be a double meaning here. One, they were brothers-in-law. Remember that, that David had initially married Jonathan's sister. But not only that, it's expression of closeness. Maybe you have a friend that you call brother or sister. I have no doubt you have people like, it's why the Christians call each other brother and sister, isn't it? David is expressing his, his, his own personal grief. This is a deep personal loss for Jonathan. The two are close. I think Matthew Henry is right and he summarizes this. The more we love, the more we will grieve. 
That's John, or that's David here. So one of the things I love about this psalm is that it is an honest reflection of the human experience. David just lays it all out there. And how much better would our prayers be if we were dishonest with our Savior? Rather than trying to wear a facade in front of him, to pour out the hearts that he already knows so well. And David reflects our common experience with grief. And grief is part of living in a fallen, broken world, groaning for redemption. And such sorrow is universal. We've all gone through it. We will all go through it again. But what are we to do about it? Well, if we can think about what we discussed last week and in this text here this week, let us choose today godly sorrow over worldly sorrow. Let us choose today gospel redemption over worldly redemption. All of this anger and pain and sorrow and grief and guilt and shame and anger, all of it was satisfied at the cross by Jesus Christ. It was there where shame was heaped upon him. It was there where guilt was laid upon him. It was there the anger of the nations was placed upon him. And there we can lay those burdens down. I've referenced Pilgrim's Progress in recent weeks, and rightly so, but one of the most beautiful scenes in Pilgrim's Progress is where Christian is carrying um, a, a burden on his back, and he's trying to find relief from his burden. And I believe that burden is psychological guilt. But, but, but he's carrying this burden, and it isn't until he comes to the cross, when he sees Christ lifted on high for his sins, for his shame, for his sorrow, for his guilt, that that, 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 that that burden rolls off his back and into a grave. And then, and then Bunyan tells us, and it will never be opened again. He was free because he came to the cross. There Christ suffered all. But the good news of the gospel is that he was raised again from the dead. Thus we grieve, not as those without hope, but those who, 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 who live by hope, that this world is not our own home. This world is not as it shall one day be. And the day will come when death will forever be defeated. Divorce will be no more. Depravity will be gone. And despair and depression and all of it will be forever gone. And the hope we have is in a Savior who can turn mourning into dancing. Because isn't that the good news of the gospel? That our hope isn't rooted in circumstances, but in a Christ who has risen from the dead. I mentioned last week how common lamentations are in the Bible. And there's an entire book called Lamentations. And there we get the honest heart of the prophet Jeremiah, seminary trained in everything. Here he, he teaches us to Remember my affliction and my wanderings. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. Sounds like David, doesn't it? Before me is what I have lost. And I have a hard time seeing past it, moving forward from it. It is ever before me. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great 
is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope and heal. This is why the modern hymn, written by Thomas Chislam, what does he sing? Pardon for sin and a peace that endures. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and ten thousands beside. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. See, that's the point of the passage, isn't it? The emotions can be real, they can be raw. But so is the faithful love of God in the middle of those moments. Thus, in our honesty, let us cling to a cross. Let's pray.